It's just that I love food. <laughs> There's no, I I don't really know any other way of describing how much I love my job. I, I'm one of those lucky, weird people that actually can go to sleep every night thinking how much I love my job, and I'm so so grateful that for some reason I ended up where I've ended up. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Many people come to Australia for the chance of a different life, for opportunity, as young kids with their family, for a new adventure. But there are some that go the other way, born in Australia, but through work, opportunity or circumstance, head abroad with their family to grow up in different surrounds. Kayleen Tan is the head chef of Tonka, an executive pastry chef of Tonka and Coda in Melbourne. Kayleen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You've got a, a hell of a couple of roles at the moment. Uh, you sound like you're pretty busy. Um, yeah, it's been good. It's been an amazing journey with um, Tonka and Coda and Adam De Silva. So I can't complain. It's been amazing. You were born in uh, Melbourne but grew up in Singapore. T- tell us what it was like, uh, food in the family and uh, in Singapore. Um, so... When I was, um, I think, about three, four years old, my parents moved back to Singapore from Melbourne. And I think for me, um, I, I'm very lucky that they did because Singapore has such a rich and, you know, diverse food culture. So I grew, I grew up around tons and tons of incredible food from every single kind of um, place you can possibly imagine from around the world. You know, because Singapore is so multiracial, I was very exposed to a lot of um, different food from like India, you know, Malaysia, and you've got like Thailand, and you know, and we're basically in Singapore, you're like the hub, pretty much, of 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 Asia. And um, my mum and my grandmother are both Peranakan, so they themselves are really really good cooks. So I also grew up with a lot of really great home cooking as well, which I think is what fueled my love and passion for food. Can you tell us about some of those feasts that you had as kids? <laughs> um, a lot of them surround, you know, celebrations like Chinese New Year, Christmas. You know, we, you know, even for I guess for me, even the simplest act of eating together as a family for dinner, like everyday dinner, was um, was really nice. You know, we all come together together, and back then was before the days of having any kind of mobile phone, social media, etc. So when we sit around the dining table, it was truly about talking about each other's day, getting to know exactly what each other was up to. So it's like a little catch-up session, you know, with the family. And, you know, we've always... My mom always made sure that we had a meat and veg and rice. I think that was the staple. And then every now and then she'd... (laughs) She'd get a little bit creative and try to make things like uh, fish and chips. I I think one of... um, a very fond memory I have was when my brother and I had chicken pox. And I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I do remember that it was a very painful experience. And I cannot, I'm sure that it was much more painful for my mother, who had <laughs> two children under the age of seven who had chicken pox at the time. Um, and I remember it was around my birthday and I couldn't go out, couldn't do anything. My brother and I obviously were like quarantined, I guess you would say, for a week. Uh, and my mum tried to make us fish and chips. <laughs> 
But see, my mother is a, a person that doesn't believe in deep frying because she feels like deep frying, there's, you get a lot of um, oil splatter. It's a big mess to clean. You know, my mom's one of those people who keeps her kitchen in a very pristine condition at all times of the day, every day of the year. My mom's kitchen is the cleanest, cleanest kitchen you could ever step into. And um, yeah, she tried to make fish and chips. I don't actually remember whether or not I was successful, but... <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the fact that she even tried. And I remember her putting a candle in the fish as well, which was kind of funny. <laughs> but that's my mom. You know, she always tries her best. And um, yeah, that's, that's one of my fond food memories from a, being a child. Well, great home food is one thing, but what led to you entering the industry and deciding to become a chef? That's actually a really funny story. So um, after I graduated from high school in Singapore, I actually went into documentary production for about four or five years. Yeah, so I have a diploma in mass communication. And um, after that, I started working in documentary production. I did a little bit of feature writing on the side, um, dabbled in like advertising and public relations and all that kind of stuff. And when I reached the age of like 24, um, I started seeing all my friends obviously graduating from university, starting careers that they were really passionate about. And I think I, I always say this, I had what I call my self-diagnosed quarter-life crisis. Um, I started wondering to myself if the job I was doing then would be something that I could do for the rest of my life. And I'm a strong believer in the whole philosophy of if you have a job you love, you never work a day in your life. So I started thinking about you know, what I actually loved. And I think that's so important when it comes to, especially it comes to cooking. So I think everything from then, from the moment I started questioning my future kind of fell into place. It was kind of serendipitous in that sense. I was working for a food magazine at the time called Cuisine and Wine Asia, and they were doing a piece on a school in Singapore called At Sunrise, which was at um, Fort Canning Park. And I was like, oh, that seems kind of cool. Maybe I'll go check it out. And I went for an open house um, with a recommendation from my friend's mother. I went there and I, all I can say is that the moment I stepped in, I fell in love. It was like, where have you been my whole life? <laughs> and that and also watching copious amounts of Top Chef on TV, <laughs> which is like the reality show that my best friend in introduced to me. And um, the <laughs> I just love the adrenaline of that show, you know, um, it's... You're watching actual professional chefs um, in a cooking competition. And it, yes, I know there's a little bit of reality drama and all that kind of stuff. But um, for the most part, it was very exhilarating to me. And of course, I know that now being, be, being a chef for over 10 years, that being a chef and watching reality TV is so very different. <laughs> it takes a totally different kind of skill set. Um, but that's how it all started. So I enrolled myself in at Sunrise. Um, I did a 17-month um, diploma in pastry and bakery art. And yeah, so that was that was the beginning. And oh my God, it was more than 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you worked at some pretty incredible, or well, with some pretty incredible chefs early on. Tell us about the early days in Singapore and the restaurants that you worked in. So, like I said, my my entire journey with food has always been very serendipitous, right? So, after I graduated from um, my apprenticeship, which I did at the Sentosa Resort and Spa with some really great chefs, and being in a hotel obviously gave me 
a very rounded idea of what being a chef was going to be because we had a restaurant there, we had a bakery, we had a pastry shop, we had a pastry kitchen, um, we did Sunday brunch, we did large numbers in that restaurant. So for me, it was kind of getting a feel of what it would actually be like working in a hotel. And the time that I graduated, for some reason, um, it so happened that Chef Jean Robuchon was opening his flagship restaurant in Singapore. And I thought to myself, that's where I wanted to work. And it was an immediate, like, that's where I want to go. And for me, making that decision was purely based on the fact that I was just starting out in, you know, culinary, being a chef or the journey to be a chef. And I really wanted to make sure that I have very, very strong foundations, especially being specialized in pastry. And I thought, where better to start than with the chef that has the most Michelin stars in the world. He has restaurants all around the world. Um, he's renowned. Um, he is himself actually also was a pastry chef. And he obviously along his journey um, deviated and also became a savory chef and, you know, a very renowned one for that matter. And um, I was actually really nervous applying for the job there because I didn't know if I would get it because, you know, I was just fresh out of school, you know, still bright eyed, bushy tailed, very optimistic. Like, I had no idea what I was in for. So I had... I had no idea whether they would actually pick me. And I still remember going through a lot of trying to get my friends who I got to know in mass communications who actually kind of helped me get a position in that restaurant. So it, I went through kind of a lot of people before I actually managed to get my resume in there. And I also still remember that they actually posted me to the Savory Kitchen initially. So on my first day of work, I went in and I was like, wait, wait, hang on. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a Savory chef. <laughs> And I still remember um, Chef Tomonori, who was the um, the executive and head chef of um, Drawa Bouchon in Singapore. He kind of looked at me and he's this really tall Japanese guy who speaks French. And he just looked at me and I, I think I froze up. I didn't quite know what to say to him. And he was like, are you sure you want to do pastry? This is your last chance, he said to me. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm sure I want to do pastry. And then he like shakes his head, like kind of disappointed at my decision. And then he just leads me to the pastry kitchen. Um, but for the most part, he was a very, he's, he's a gentleman. Like I, I really enjoyed, I didn't work very closely with him, but I really enjoyed my time working at the restaurant. What was it like working in the, working in that kitchen? Um. Okay. This is way before like, I knew anything from anything. So um, I would have to say that it nearly broke me <laughs> physically, mentally, and emotionally. And um, looking back on it now, 10 years have gone by. I would say that I'm very grateful for the experience, but I still remember that at that point of time, I think it got, it got to the point that I nearly gave up. That was how hard it was. It's you're working with classically trained French chefs who have been working for Monsieur Robuchon for over 10 years. Like, you know, like I mentioned Tomonori Danzaki and he's been at that point of time, he was working for Robuchon for like 18 years and he still is working for Monsieur Robuchon. So you can imagine the kind of mindset that these chefs have. It's very regimental. It's very... Um, unwavering 
they know things to be a certain way and they want the standards to remain that way as well because obviously they have an immense pride in the work that they produce for the restaurant. So coming in there and not actually knowing head from tail very much and not understanding the kind of standards you're expected to live up to, I think a lot of us copped it pretty bad in that restaurant, like all of us generally. And I've seen, I saw a lot of people walk out and I, I myself at one point of being there nearly walked out as well. It was just, it was so, so hard. I, I, there's actually no words to describe how hard it was. I've had like, I've had Paco tins thrown at my head. I've had, I was like, you know, I've screamed at, um, you know, spoken to in French, probably getting insulted and cursed at. But at that point back then, I had no idea what they were saying. So I was just kind of like, you know, we chef, we chef, oh, désolé chef, that's it. You know, you have no idea what they're screaming at you. Um, you know, I've broken down many times and it actually got to the point that my mother actually asked me like, why are you doing this to yourself? I would come home every night crying and she, you know, I would tell her like, I'm not cut out to be a chef. This is not, this is not for me. I can't do this. And she literally held my face in her hands and she was like, darling, why are you doing this to yourself? Just quit, <laughs> you know? Um, and it nearly got to that point, but um, it's kind of funny because I think after you reach the breaking point and you get over that hump, I, I don't know whether I would say I was, I saw a light or whatever, but um, I actually got to the point that I stood up for myself. This is a story I haven't actually told anyone, much less a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So after this whole conversation with my mother, I, it, and mind you, this was like months and months and months of torment, right? Not so much torment, but like discipline, months and months of discipline. And um, I went to work and once again, had another altercation with a chef. And I'm not going to mention any names because now he's a friend, right? Um, and I had this big altercation with a chef and I just stood there thinking to myself, Am I going to continue down this road, allowing this person to continue to demean me and make me feel that I'm not good enough? Because I know that at that point I was trying my best and I still remember we were cleaning down the kitchen at that point and <clears throat> I just snapped. I don't know what came over me. I was so afraid. I knew in my heart on that day, I was like, yep, I'm getting fired. <laughs> Like, there's no way I'm coming back. There's absolutely no way that he wants me to come back in the kitchen again. So I had a big fight with my with the sous chef, the pastry sous chef. And um, we were yelling at each other at the top of our voices. I stormed out. I slammed the kitchen door and I walked out. Yeah, and I walked out. And, I, and because Joel Robichon's restaurant was in um, Resorts World Sentosa, there was like a small area outside that I walked, I, when I walked out, I just sat there for like about 20 minutes, like trying to calm myself because I was shaking, I was crying. It was just, it's just very, very, very dramatic. <clears throat> and um, I, I was thinking to myself, yep, that's it. I'm, that's the end. So I walked into, I walked back into the kitchen about after 20 minutes and I saw my sous chef sitting on the bench. And then he looks at me and he just says, Savake? And I was like, Savage chef. And then he's like, we, oui. 
And I was, then he just stood up. And then he walked over towards me. At this point, very calm. Um, <clears throat> shakes my hand. And then he just says, um, Arma. And he walks off. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to get it tomorrow morning. Okay, because by this time, this thing happened. It was already 1am. So I was like, all right, we need to get to work. I need to get to work at 9am tomorrow. Um, go home and, you know, face the fate tomorrow, I would say. <laughs> and then the next day came and nothing happened. It was very weird. I was just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then we just went along our merry way. Um, he went on a holiday. I think he went to Vietnam. At this sous chef, he went off to Vietnam. Came back after a week. And then after the week was up, we had um, an appraisal. Because I had already been there for about a year. So I was like, all right, appraisal time. And there were like four of us who were um, commie ones at that time. Commies, I would say. Um, and... I thought to myself, yep, that's it. This is the end for me. I am not getting promoted. I'm not going anywhere. And I walked to my appraisal with my pastry chef, Antonio. And I sat there thinking to myself, still remembering this altercation, right? That just happened maybe about a month ago. Thinking to myself, like, that's it. And um, surprisingly enough, I got promoted. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, they promoted me to Demi Chef de party, and I walked back to the kitchen and the sous chef I had the argument with kind of just stood there and I was like, I'm a bit confused. And he said to me, you need it, you, it needed to come out of you. And I was like, what do you mean it needed to come out of me? And obviously he's like speaking a bit of like his English is not 100% perfect. And I looked at him and I was like, what do you mean it needed to come out? And he was like, you needed that release. And I don't know whether it's because I fought back with him that I earned his respect for some strange reason or whatever. But ever since that day passed, then everything changed. Suddenly it was, I didn't get yelled at as much as anymore. We had conversations like adults. So after stepping away from it now, it kind of makes me wonder whether all that was just, you know how like in the army, they train you till you break. And then when you come out of it, you're just that much stronger. I don't know whether that's part of the regimen, but um, I look, I know it's very, it's very scary to say this now, but I look back on that really fondly. <laughs> I'm so weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, I, I, I do look back on those days now and I, I, I it's funny because I just, um, you know how Facebook gives you memories and stuff? Like what happened this day 10 years ago? And I saw a photo that we took, the, the entire team, the Alatelier and the fine dining team took in front of Jean Robuchon just as it opened. And I looked at the date and believe it or not, it was nearly 10 years ago this month. Yeah. So, and it's funny because I posted that photo on my social media and I started talking to all the chefs that I hadn't had contact with for so many years. And a lot of them are still with, you know, Bishaw Robuchon still working for his restaurants and some of them have branched out. But, you know, it's kind of nice talking to them now and reminiscing 
about the times and things that happened when we were in the restaurant. So, well, you were one to definitely branch out, and you've done some pretty incredible things all over the globe. But what 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 led to you coming back to Melbourne? Um, so after I finished with Joe Bouchon, I'll fast forward a little bit. I started working with um, at Jason Atherton's restaurant um, Pollen with a really great pastry chef called uh, Chef Andreas Lara. Um, he's actually my pastry mentor. He taught me a lot. So I was at Pollen for about a year. And honestly, if Andreas had stayed in Singapore, I think I would have stayed with him forever. But he ended up getting posted to Hong Kong to open, um, I think it was Aberdeen Street Social in Hong Kong for Jason Atherton. So at that point of time, we had just come back from, uh, you know, he was in, Andreas was invited to Australia to do a demo with Boyron, I think. And he, I come here, my brother was already here. So we, I visited him during that trip and I, um, I thought to myself at that time that I really wanted to get out of Singapore to try to work in another country, experience another kind of culture. And for a while, I was playing with the idea of going to New York. <clears throat> um, and it was really far away from home, which is part of the reason why I kind of decided against it because I didn't want to be that far away from Singapore. So my mom actually said to me, you know, you actually are Australian. Like, why haven't you ever thought of going to Australia to work? And it never really crossed my mind. I don't know why. <laughs> it, just, it just didn't. Um, so that was part of the reason why I decided to come here. And plus, my brother was here. My mom was like, at least you guys will be together. You know, and plus, Australia is not that far from Singapore as well. So if anything were to happen, you're only like eight hours away. As opposed to being like more than a day away. So that was part of the reason why I came back to Melbourne. You uh, currently have a huge role uh, at Tonka and Coda, but over the last couple of years, you've um, won scholarships and you've won awards and you've got to um, the opportunity to work with some of the world's best chefs like Dominique Cran and Anna Ross. Tell, tell us about what it was like working with those people. The reason why I chose to go to Atelier Cran with Dominique Crane and the reason why I decided to go to Hisa Franco to work with Anna um, was purely for the fact that I really look up to them as role models and being in their restaurants and receiving the hospitality that I did when I was there really shone a very bright light on the kind of manager and the kind of chef that I want to become. So with um, Ed Atelier Cren, I worked with um, Chef Juan Contreras and his pastry team at um, Atelier Cren. And Chef Juan is really cool. He's probably one of the coolest pastry chefs I've ever met. He has no social media. He's not, you cannot find him anywhere on Instagram or anything. And I asked him, doesn't it, like, isn't it difficult being a chef, especially in this day and age, without social media? And he said to me, that when you cook, you don't cook to please anyone, like, visually but yourself. And he said, at the end of the day, as long as you are happy with what you've created and it is your best, then the people who are coming to the restaurant to eat it or to experience it will feel that love that you've put into that dessert or that dish that you've created. And he says he doesn't believe on, believe on putting things online because he's just not that kind of chef. And... You know, especially in this day and age, that's very unusual and very unique. And a lot of his accolades and stuff, like, you know, 
Chef Dominique actually, <laughs> she promotes him a lot on her own social media, which I find, you know, very heartening. And it's, even in her Netflix um, on Chef's Table, she speaks so highly of him as well. And um, you can actually see the kind of bond that they have together. And it's, it's very admirable that they managed to meet each other and are working together, you know, so, so well. Um, she's also the kind of person, like, when I was there, she's very warm. Like, you know, sometimes you meet your role models and they don't turn out to be, like, how you expect them to turn out. But she, from the moment that I met her, she was just warm and friendly and she's always bubbly and very fun and, like, I still remember the first time she walked into the pastry kitchen and she said hello. You know, she came up to me and she, she asked me for my name and you know, she, she was just very warm. She said, enjoy your time here. You know, we're so happy to have you. And, you know, and she was very obliging and all that kind of stuff. But the one, the one experience about being in Atelier Crane that really stuck with me was when, um, I think it was a Saturday. I, I could be wrong. So <laughs> forgive me if I get the day wrong. But um, she calls a restaurant meeting. So Atelier Crane, Bar Crane, um, all the staff, front of front and back of house, we all gather in the Atelier Crane dining room. I think this is like maybe two or three hours before service. And she stands and she gives a brief breakdown of what happened during the week. Um, she shares with the team accolades that at, at that time when I was there, it was like the fact that they got nominated for 50 best again. Mm. Um, she tells everyone um, back and front of house the good things that have happened, areas that need to be improved. Um, she calls out certain people like by name and tells them like, thank you for, to this person for doing this particular thing this week, you know, and also this person came out with a great idea for like a dish or something like that. And, you know, she, it just felt very inclusive, which is very rare, especially, I, I mean, I personally have never experienced that before. So I stood there kind of um, an observer in a way, but I could see how all these people could feel like in that restaurant that they were a family. It's because like they all were in this, like back in front of the house, like they were all there to enjoy the accolades, to listen to, so no one is left out of the loop, which is actually really, really pretty great. I felt. And the same thing, you know, happened when I was at Hisa Franco. Like the moment I went there, um, and I, I'm sure you've, you know about Hisa Franco that mm -hmm. Anna, Anna actually lives upstairs. So Hisa Franco is actually wow. her, her home. <laughs> 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 it's a home. So the first day, I, I still remember reaching, landing in Slovenia, being incredibly jet lagged because it was a very, very long flight. And the first person I meet when I walked in was Walter, her husband. And he's sitting outside the restaurant and they were closed on the day. And he comes to me, he goes like, hi, how are you? And I was like, good. And from that moment, he was just like, do you want some water? You're looking very tired. Um, and it's that, again, that warm hospitality that, you know, they extended to me, even they had no idea who I was. Um, you know, he helped me take my bags to the dorm. And it's that same inclusive atmosphere that you get there because obviously the staff dorms are on the premises as well you know 
and and nearby. So in the nearby little town, there's a few like staff accommodations, but everyone lives so near, like all the staff live so nearby. So it was a very, <laughs> it was like a little community, I would say. So I stayed in the dorms. I think I was there for about two weeks and you know, she actually asked me if I wanted to stay for a week or I wanted to stay a bit longer. And, you know, given the chance to stay longer, I was like, oh, of course I would stay for two weeks. Like, why wouldn't I? So thankfully, um, Melbourne Food and Wine were really accommodating with that. They were like, yeah, of course, you're welcome to stay longer, you know, and, you know, the accommodation was on the premises as well. And the same thing in that kitchen, you know, everyone's very united. Everyone talks, every, you know, on on the days off that we have, I think... I, to be honest, right now, I don't even remember what day it was because everything was a blur. But the two days we had off, um, everyone would just kind of hang out together. You know, we, they had, I think on the second day I was there, they had like a small get together. They had like a barbecue or, and everyone was there. So once again, it was that very inclusive kind of kitchen environment. We ate family meals together and it was really nice. Like we would sit outside looking at the mountains snow-capped mountains it was so picturesque it was like being in a fairy tale and we just all sit outside having lunch together you know just getting ready for service for lunch service for example and it just felt like a family which is the one thing i took away from both these restaurants is that feeling of family and it's something that i try my very best to um bring into tonka as well because from from the day that I stepped into Tonka, that was always the feeling that was there. I know sometimes it's kind of gone, some, sometimes during the seven years that I've been there, it's kind of gone awry a little bit. Um, but I mean, like every family, nothing's perfect all the time. Um, we go through bumps and hurdles, but at the end of the day, we come out a lot stronger. And, you know, that is what I always try to the kind of environment I try to build at Tonka is that I always remind them that we're not just a team, but we're a family. And that Tonka is somewhat like your home. I mean, you spend more time at work than you do anywhere else in your life. So if you can't feel at home at where you work, then it's never going to be a place that you look forward to going. And I try to make sure that they feel that way when they're at Tonka. So... <laughs> in a nutshell. You're the executive pastry chef at Tonka and Coder and head chef at Tonka. Is, what's, is there challenges involved in managing and being uh, so high up in both of the venues and treating them differently? Um, I think the great thing about working in Tonka and Coder is that I have a lot of really talented young chefs that work with me. Um, like at Coder, for example, I work with this really... Um, young and talented and very tenacious pastry chef called Joanne and she is she's very young she's very she's very hungry and I appreciate that so much in her because you know she's constantly wanting to push herself and you know I've I told her I think over the last one year especially like through COVID and stuff and ever since um, they made me the head chef at Tonka I said to her like look I can't do everything at the same time Obviously, I'm going to need help. So I said, I said that I think you're ready like to create your own menu at Coda. You know, make that p little pastry area yours. And if you need any help, I'm always here to have a chat. 
you know, if you need any kind of like um, advice of, you know, flavor pairings or like how, th- how you want things to go together. And she's been executing my menu at Koda um, so successfully for so long. Like, I think, you know, for her, you know, she has, I have no doubt in my mind that she was ready for that challenge to create her own menu and to, um, to basically take charge of the section. You know, if you don't give people the opportunities, you're never going to know how far they, they can go. So with her, you know, she's started doing you know, her own things on the menu and it's been really, really great. She's taken somewhat of the template that, um, that Koda had with their dessert menu and basically ran with her own ideas, which I'm very, very grateful for. And, you know, we, we talk probably once or twice a week. And every time she has a problem, she comes to me. If I have a problem, I'll go to her. And it's that really great partnership that we have that I'm very, very grateful for. Well, tell us about desserts. Tell us, how do you create desserts and what makes a great dessert? Um, believe it or not, I actually don't like desserts. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> I'm, a more, I'm, I'm more of a potato chip kind of girl. <laughs> um, like, I know I love a good packet of salt and vinegar. <laughs> but uh, what makes a great dessert to me is a great balance of flavor. I don't like desserts that are overly sweet or overly sour. So my desserts always have a hint of salt, which I find. And it's not just like salt that you put like a pinch and you can't taste it. Like for me, my the, the salt in my desserts, usually one of the elements, it's quite pronounced. Like you can tell like, yep, there's salt in that. And I feel that it brings a different um, layer of flavor to desserts. And a lot of the desserts that I create are based on memories from my childhood, like flavor, flavors or ideas or desserts that my, I or my family have enjoyed. Like, for example, the Tonka um, carrot halwa dessert was based around my mom's Love for carrot cake. <laughs> my mom loves um, loves a good carrot cake. And everywhere we go, when we were in Singapore, she would always be on the search for the perfect carrot cake. Although I, until today, I still don't know what this perfect carrot cake tastes like. Um, I can only imagine it because she's constantly waxing lyrical about this perfect carrot cake. But um, the dessert that I created at Tonko was based on that um, that flavor profile of like walnuts, you know, Cream cheese, carrots, and apricot. Because I love apricot. But that was the first dessert, one of the first desserts I created for Tonka, and it was based on that. And I think every now and then I get like um, sparks of inspiration. Like one of the desserts that I really enjoyed as a kid was this ice cream called Potong ice cream. So it's like, it's a really cheap ice cream. I think it's only like 60 cents or something. Um, and they come in different flavors, like red bean, they've got like palm seed, and they have corn. So one of these, like maybe, maybe two years ago, I went through this thing about, I cannot find potok ice cream in Melbourne. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to make it myself. So I created a corn and coconut bomb Alaska, which was like, you know, it's, it's vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, nut-free. So it was like the perfect dietary dessert. And that ice cream for me tasted like home, that corn ice cream. I know, 
<laughs> I was met I was met with a lot of um, opposition. They were like, corn is so controversial. No one's going to order it. <laughs> but <laughs> it tasted good. And I think that's all that really mattered, to be honest. <laughs> you came from the world of uh, discipline under Joel Rubichon and went to Dominique Cran and Anna Ross for inspiration. Uh, tell us about the impact of that and what sort of leadership you provide um, where you are at the moment. I have to say that the one chef in my life, I mean, aside from the three amazing chefs that I had the chance to work with, you know, Chef Jean Bouchon, Dominique Crane and Anna Ross, and they are all amazing, amazing chefs um, that I had the opportunity to work with. But the one chef that actually showed me the kind of leader that I wanted to be was Chef Andreas Lara. And he was always the kind of chef that you could joke around with. You know, he would always have stories for you when you were working with him on the line. And he taught me that to be a leader, you don't need to scare people or bully people into listening to you. And I still remember there was once I was working with him and I accidentally, well, I don't know whether I would say accidentally, but I burnt um, a tray of puff pastry. And this was already when I was like six months into working with him. And I still remember that I forgot to set the timer on this oven. And he, he smelt it and he was like, Kay, what's that? Like, I smell something burning. And I was like, oh, sh shit, like, I burned the puff. So I pulled out the tray and I put it on the, on the table. And he looked at me and I was like so sure he was going to scream. And he just, he just walked up to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, Kayleen, I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed you can do so much better than that and he just walked off and i tell you that was scarier than getting a paco jet thrown at you <laughs> <laughs> i like that immense that's that immense sense of guilt and disappointment that you've let down someone that you hold in such high regard that that pain man you don't come back from that you're just like wow i am so like there's not enough apologies that you can say to make up for the fact that you've completely screwed up this tray of puff pastry. It suddenly feels like the end of the world. <laughs> but that is the kind of leader that I've always wanted to be. Like, I understand that. I, I have to say, I'm not guilt. I'm not innocent of not losing my temper, of not screaming, of not being... A hard, a hard person to work with sometimes. Like, I'm quite sure that there are people out there who will say, like, Kayleen is probably the worst person to work with or the hardest person to work with. I mean, we all, we all have our moments. But I, for the most part, try to be as humane and, and you know, as, as I possibly can, which is a lot of the time, actually. In fact, if you go into Tonka now and you ask them, how am I to work with? I think a lot of them would say, like, I've, I rarely lose my temper. And that is something I always try to do. Like, especially in a kitchen setting, sometimes you just can't help it. It's just, you know, tensions run high. You need things to be at a certain place at a certain time as soon as possible. Because there are obviously customers waiting. And sometimes tensions run high and you just can't hold back. And I'm not saying that chefs have to be, you know, caring and loving 100% of the time. Because they're, they're obvious, I mean, we're all only human. But at the end of the day, I think what's important is walking away from that and going like, pulling that person aside and going like, is everything okay? 
Is there a reason? Is there a reason why this wasn't done in a timely manner? And finding out whether this person was is going through any struggle, and that's what I've been trying to do um, in Tonka as well. You know, sometimes you can kind of sense when one of your chefs is having an off week or an off day, and sometimes I feel pulling them aside and having those conversations actually opens up, you know, a, a bigger conversation that you might not know that you would have. Like for example. I think one of the most recent stories that I would have was I had a conversation with one of my apprentices who um, I could feel that he was going through something because his work had been slipping over the last three months, and you know I really care for this for this apprentice and he has always been a very integral part of my team, and I could see that he was kind of slipping, so I pulled him aside and I was like, "Is something wrong?" Like. What's going on? Like, obviously, there's something that's happening, and you know, when he spoke to me and to two of my colleagues, like, because we all sat together to discuss the situation that was happening, I found out that he actually might not want to be a chef anymore, and it's not because of anything that's happening at Tonka, because he made that very clear. Like, I love working at Tonka. It's just that I don't know whether this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. And he said to me, you know, I was actually really scared about talking to you. And I was like, I'm a career changer. I changed my career when I was 24. So if anyone knows what you're going through right now, it's me. I know that it's scary to want to change your course, but it's not too late. And he was—he's only like 20, 21, I think. And I was like, I said to him, it's never too late to want to change your path or what you want to do. And yeah, so he's gonna complete his apprenticeship, and we'll see where we go from there. But you know, it's having those conversations and letting them know that you're there for them to listen without judgment. And I think that's the most important thing. Well, you changed careers early on, uh, and <laughs> for something that you love, how do you see your career now? What do you love about what you do? I love being around food <laughs> every day. <laughs> that's it. I love. I, that's 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 plainly it. It's just that I love food. <laughs> that's no, I I don't really know any other way of describing how much I love my job. I, and I say this every day to my best friend. You know, my best friend's in Singapore. She works for a, a amazing fashion brand called Love Bonito, and I always say to her, Vanessa, I'm one of those lucky weird people that actually can go to sleep every night thinking how much I love my job, and. I am so so grateful that, for some reason, I ended up where I've ended up today. And when I look back at the last ten to twelve years of my career, sometimes it's kind of hard for me to believe that. It's kind of hard for me. Sorry, it's kind of hard for me to believe that、um, I've gotten to this point. And I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that have, like. Been given to me over the last ten to twelve years, and yeah, I love I love food so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love being. I also love being able now to be a mentor and hopefully someone that other people can look up to and go like, you know, hey, that's not, it's not impossible, and I know it's. Especially being in certain kitchen environments, I do 
completely empathize with how hard it is and you know especially now with 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 putting a lot more attention on like um mental well-being and um all that kind of mental health which is i find is so important because when you're not in the right frame of mind especially being in a kitchen where you know everything is hot and sharp there are a lot of much worse things that could possibly happen and you know when i i don't know um like when i was younger as well like when i was in grade school and um in high school i was bullied a lot so i didn't really have friends until i was about 14 or 15 years old and until then it was just you know being and i i have to say that i cannot possibly compare how i was bullied from when i was a kid to the way that children these days are being bullied in schools because now it's like people are using things like social media to attack a person's life and family which is it's really it's really scary to see but i guess my if if is anything to take away from everything is that there is a there is a silver lining and you just have to either go find someone to talk to for me i had my mum who was always you know my strength throughout everything and my brother as well because you know their fierce loyalty and love for me really helped see me through those really really difficult times but you know find someone to talk to and you know it's there is always light at the end of the tunnel and i can't say every story will be like mine because obviously everyone has their own struggles as well but um i have to say that i can empathize with those really difficult situations well kayleen um that's great advice and we'd loved having you uh, share your incredible stories on deep in the weeds today um and i'm sure there's so many more i think um perhaps we could catch up again down the line and and check in on how you're doing with everything and and hear some more stories but uh we've loved having you on deep in the weeds today please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon thank you so much anthony this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of australia's hospo community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic Special thanks to executive producer Rob Lock for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast@deepintheweeds.com.au. At Stay safe and be well.